I'm now talking to Paul Boyne at Manu Life, who's one of the uh, joint managers on the Global Equity Income Strategy. Paul, hello to you. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for joining us today. Paul, the fund has a relatively significant allocation to US-listed companies. How does that reflect your view of the US economy relative to other economies around the world? In a way, it doesn't really, because we don't take a top-down macro view when we're putting the portfolio together. Everything we do is from a bottom-up perspective. Now, from an absolute perspective, we have a very significant allocation to the US. We're roughly mid to high 40% in the portfolio. However, if you compare that to the MSCI world, that is probably in the high 50s for the US and into the 60s if you simply refer to North America. So in many respects, we're actually underweight the US despite having a large absolute exposure. If you drill down into the companies that we own, many of the US listed companies are multinationals and they in turn, derive revenues from around the world. So they, they themselves are not purely U.S. companies. So, you're, so they're effectively global companies rather than, rather than U.S. companies. And that's the way investors should think about it. Absolutely. I mean, the best example at an extreme is Philip Morris, uh, the U.S. tobacco business, the U.S. listed tobacco business. But that derives no revenue from the U.S. despite being listed there. Another good example is Mondelez, the global snacking company that's probably best known in the U.K. for its acquisition of Cadbury's. About a quarter of its revenue only, and only about a third of its operating profit is from the U.S., despite being a U.S.-listed business. And in a similar vein, you've got quite substantial holdings in Roche and Novartis. I believe they're top 10 holdings. Perhaps you could talk about the, the outlook for the, for the pharma sector. They're obviously global businesses, but uh, there are some competitive threats around. Do, do you think that might change your view? When we look at the pharmaceuticals, the way we try to look at them is to value the in-market drugs. We know when the patents expire. We know when we know what the implication of that is in terms of lost revenue and profitability. And by implication, we can therefore attribute a valuation to the pipeline, essentially trying to value that optionality in terms of R&D. So it's placing a real value on the drug, drugs that are currently being sold into the market. Exactly. Yeah, and not trying to put too much on, on where the company's R&D expenditure may lead them to in the future and the expectation of future revenues. Exactly, in terms of the valuation we apply to it. Now, the R&D is a big exposure, so they probably, most pharmaceuticals spend about 20% of their revenue on research and development, so it is significant. But we don't want to put too high a valuation on that pipeline because obviously you can spend a lot of money on drugs that ultimately never actually make it to market. So you avoid the danger, therefore, of too much speculation in terms of the efficacy of the drug, drug pipeline. Is that, is that correct? That's absolutely the approach. So as I say, we, we know what the in-market drugs are. We know when their patent expiration is by region. So from a cash generation perspective, we're able to value the cash flows of what the business is today. There are times when you get that pipeline for free or even a negative value. Um, there are times when that pipeline becomes very expensive. And that's what we try to, to value, essentially. And from a valuation perspective, try not to place a lot of value on that optionality. And in, in determining that, that valuation, how do you think about developments in the pharmaceutical sector? So, for example, the so-called uh, biosimilar drugs. Okay. So, first of all, let's explain what biosimilars are. They are to injectable drugs, essentially what generics are to pills. But the big difference is that biosimilars aren't exact copies of drugs that they're substituting, whereas generic pills actually replicate the molecular structure of a branded pill. 
So both injectable drugs and patents have expirations, so they will suffer from lowest market share at some point as biosimilars, et cetera, enter the market. Now, if you look at the companies that we own, two of the bigger exposures, say Russian Novartis, they have exposure to biosimilars as well as having underlying exposure to branded product. Novartis is probably a little unique insofar as it actually owns a biosimilar business called Sandos, which is about 10% of its operating income, and that's growing over time. So in a way, one of the divisions of Novartis is actually trying to take advantage of this threat. For Rush, its oncology business is actually built on biologics. Its largest selling drugs are, are biologics called monoclonal antibodies. And again, they're heavily investing in this, in this area. So whilst they are developing branded products, they're also developing these type of drugs and sort of recognizing the threat and being part of that as, in terms of the industry. What are these um, monoclonal antibodies that you're referring to? That's, a, that's certainly a new name to me. Okay, it's just a type of biologic. So for Roche, basically, it's within their oncology or cancer franchise. Okay. Paul, I, I finally wanted to ask you about how you perceive the outlook for, for dividends on a global basis. Obviously, there's been dividend cuts for quite a number of UK companies that our clients might have heard about. How, how do you perceive things from the, 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 the global landscape? So I think, you know, when we look at companies within a portfolio, understanding dividend sustainability is, is very important. And we try to evaluate that not only by simple things like dividend cover, but also by understanding the underlying free cash flow generation of a business and essentially its balance sheet strength. Because that, the first, obviously, is the long-term way of, of paying the dividend. The latter, the balance sheet, could be a short-term sort of bridge for a company if necessary. Now, as you say, there have been a lot of cuts probably within the banking and within mining industries within the UK. Within a global context, there's still a lot of companies that are paying dividends that exceed the 110% threshold of the global income IMA sector. So whilst we've seen that decline in terms of percentages in the UK, it's been relatively flat in the world index. So we're still seeing a lot of opportunities in terms of dividends globally. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today, Paul. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for your time. Any views and opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals and are subject to change. Where individual securities are mentioned, they do not necessarily represent a specific portfolio holding and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase or sell. Please be aware that past performance is not indicative of future performance. The value of an investment may fall as well as rise and you may get back less than you invested. Returns on equities cannot be guaranteed. Equities do not provide the security of capital characteristic of a deposit with a bank or building society.